Lord, we give you thanks and praise because you are so good. And Father, you are, we sang it, you're indescribable. And there is no word that can accurately or fully tell us who you are. But one day, Father, you have promised us that we will get to know. You tell us in your word that one day we will know even as we are known. And I can't wait for that day. For tonight, Lord, unless you plan to come get us in any moment, we're going to get into 2 Samuel. And we pray, Father, that you would guide us, that you would teach us, that you would let us hear your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 <laughs> so David has fled from Jerusalem. Absalom has come into the capital city in his attempted coup after schmoozing, I purposely wrote schmoozing, many in Israel to follow him. Remember, he would, he would sit by the gate and when people would come in, he'd be like, oh, you know, where are you from? What are you doing here? Oh, you, you, got, a, you got a case you need my dad to listen to? Well, it's just, it's too bad that he's so busy that he probably won't be able to hear your case. If it was up to me, I'd give you justice because clearly, clearly you're right. And your neighbor, your friend, whoever is wrong. But it's just too bad that I'm not the one in charge. And as a result of this, he got a lot of people to follow him. One of David's closest friends, a guy by the name of Ahithophel, has betrayed him. We will see tonight that Ahithophel wants David dead. And as we will see, oh, sorry, that's the same line I just read. David now, though, has set up a spy network involving the high, the, the, the high priest and the other priest and their sons. And this other guy named, um, is it Hushai? Chapter 16. That's right. Your phone is correct. Yeah, Hushai, right? And so he's basically set up this whole... Wow, we should just put it up here. It can do it for me. <laughs> for anybody online, because you probably couldn't hear that, uh, Brother Roy's phone started reading the chapter for us. I was, I was trying. Um, so he set up this spy network that we're going to see work tonight. Last time we finished up with David worshiping on top of the Mount of Olives. And he sends Hushai, his friend, back to the advisors. He was an elderly man, and he goes back to spy on Absalom. You ready? Chapter 16. When David was a little past the top of the mountain, there was Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth who met him with a couple of saddled donkeys and on them 200 loaves of bread, 100 clusters of raisins, 100 summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, What do you mean to do with these? So Ziba said, The donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who are faint in the wilderness to drink. Then the king said, And where is your master's son? And Ziba said to the king, Indeed, he is staying in Jerusalem, for he said, Today... The house of Israel will restore the kingdom to my, of my father to me. So the king said to Ziba, Here, all that belongs to Mephibosheth is yours. And Ziba said, I humbly bow before you, that I may find favor in your sight. 
my Lord, O King. So the return of Ziba, right? We saw him a few chapters back when David wanted a descendant of Saul to be kind to. So he brings, uh, I'm just going to call him M because if I keep saying his name over and over again, it's going to become bad. Um, so David showed M this kindness. He restored all of Saul and Jonathan's land to M and he let him eat at his table. And he put Ziba and his sons in charge of taking care of the land. So Ziba shows up. He brings a bunch of food and supplies for David and, and his family and the men who are with him. And David says, hey, where's Mephibosheth? And Ziba says, oh, you know what? He stayed, he stayed in Jerusalem. He's got this idea that he's going to regain the throne for himself. And David said, oh, really? Fine. Everything that was his is now yours. And Ziba replies with, I humbly bow before you that I may find favor in your sight my lord the king now here's the argument over this passage right it shouldn't have an argument right it seems pretty straightforward here's the argument when we get to chapter um, 19 we see uh, Mephibosheth at David's return to Jerusalem and Mephibosheth I said I wasn't going to say it but I'm, I'm doing good I'm, I'm tempting fate at this point um he sees David and he tells him how happy he is to see him. And when David says, well, Ziba said this was what you were up to. And, and M goes, no, 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 no. Ziba's a liar. And of course, Ziba's nearby and goes, uh-uh. So David ends up splitting the land between them. But we'll, we'll get there. So here's the deal. Either Ziba, it's a great name. Either Ziba's telling the truth. Or, when we get to chapter 19, Saul's grandson, Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, is telling the truth. Anybody? I'm for M. You're for who? M. I mean, M, M, okay. So you wouldn't go against David after David was the I would think so. Right? So we either have a very painful betrayal by somebody that David treated with great kindness... Or we have Ziba, who's an opportunistic snake, right? Because Mephibosheth would have had a hard time following David. Remember, he was, he was basically paralyzed in some way. Um, I don't know. We'll revisit it in chapter 19. Once we read M's plea, we'll have to decide. Verse 5. Now, when King David came to Bahurim... There was a man from the family of the house of Saul whose name was Shemai, the son of Gera, coming from there. He came out cursing continuously as he came. So uh, um, Shemai was a sailor of some sort. I don't know. And he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David and all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and is on his left. And Shemai said thus when he cursed, come out, come out. You bloodthirsty man, you rogue. The Lord has brought upon you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has delivered the kingdom into the hand of Absalom, your son. So now you are caught in your own evil, because you are a bloodthirsty man. Then Abishai, remember uh, there was Joab and Abishai and um, Abner. They were three brothers, Joab in charge. Abishai is, one, is his brother the son of Zeruiah, he says to the king, why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Please let me go over and take off his head. <laughs> ah! 
it's just a great saying, you know, and, and, and maybe, maybe uh, Abishai was like, you know, who is this dog to talk about my Lord, the King this way? Let me go take off his head. But I think it's kind of more fun to read it the way I did the first time. <laughs> you know, just kind of like, you know, that guy's kind of being a jerk. Should I go kill him? It's up to you, you know. Verse 10. But the king said, what do I, or what have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? So let him curse, because the Lord has said to him, curse David. Who then shall say, why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and all the servants, see how my son who came from my own body seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite? Let him alone and let him curse, for so the Lord has ordered him. It may be that the Lord will look on my affliction and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing this day. And as David and his men went along the road, Shammai went along the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went, threw stones at him and kicked up dust. Now the king and all the people who were with him became weary. So they refreshed themselves there. So this Benjamite, Shammai, some relation to Saul, even at the very least because they're the same tribe, he curses David, all the people. He's throwing rocks at them. I, I, it's kind of like junior high school. I don't know. And he blames David for Saul's death and the ruin of Saul's family. But that wasn't the case, was it? Right? If he would have just read 1 Samuel, he would have known that Saul was in the wrong the whole time. That David had nothing to do with Saul's death. And in fact, David avenged Saul's death. David had nothing to do with the ending of Saul's kingdom. Saul did that himself by his own disobedience and pride. But David doesn't let Abishai kill him. He says, leave him alone. Maybe God told him to do this. Then he says in verse 12, what I think is just, what an incredible statement. It may be that the Lord will look on my infliction and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing this day. Something we typically see of David is that he will simply resign himself to the will and purposes of God. We saw that most of the time when he was running from Saul. I mean, David had his bad days like we all do. And we've seen it on many other occasions. And this is all happening, remember, as part of the consequences for David's sin. The sword... God said, would not depart from his house. And David, I'm sure, is very aware of that. In Psalm 145, verse 17 through 20, we read this. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him he also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. So I appreciate David here. I'm going to talk a little bit more about the sovereignty of God later. But right here, David's like, you know what? Absalom is my fault. If God told this guy to curse me, fine, let him curse me. We saw uh, last time, if God brings me back to Jerusalem, great. If not, okay, it's up to him. What a great attitude, right? That's always our attitude as the mature Christ followers that we are, right? But Lord, I don't want to. Anybody else whine at God? Am I the only one? Well, somebody's a liar. 
<laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I thought you were like, nope, I don't do that. You know, but we do. We whine at God. So uh, years ago when I was, well, not, not many years ago, but a few years ago, when I was teaching fifth and sixth grade, I had a student. And the student was bilingual. The student spoke English, and then the student spoke whiny. And I used to listen to this student because they were in the classroom next door the year before I had them as a student. And I'm, I'm trying no identifying marks because some of the people who knew me back when I was a teacher would know this person. Who's now in high school. But I used to hear this person whine all the time person came to my class first day of class but mr star nope no whining in my classroom it's like i remember a league of their own no crying in baseball no whining in my classroom now it took me about i don't know probably two months two and a half months to break this child of that habit because every time they whined i would say there's no whining in my classroom but mr star and i would ignore this child. And I told them over and over again, if you have a question, I will gladly answer it. If you're upset about something, I will do whatever I can to help you. But if you're going to whine about it, I'm not going to listen. They learned. They eventually learned. I, I think that was one of my greatest accomplishments as a teacher. <laughs> but, you know, I didn't really learn the lesson, and I'm very grateful. God, God is a lot nicer than I am. Because when I whine, he still listens. Now, David looks like he's doing pretty good here, doesn't he? Right? He's, nope, you're not going to kill this guy. Maybe this is from the Lord. Wow, David, good job. Until we get to 1 Kings chapter 2. When we get to 1 Kings chapter 2, David is about to die. He has proclaimed Solomon as king. And he's giving Solomon instructions before his death. One of David's instructions before his death. He tells Solomon to kill Shemai. He tells his son, bring his gray head down to the grave with blood. So not just like throw him out or, you know, hang him or get rid of him. No, no, no. He commands Solomon to give this man a violent death. Well, you know, we shouldn't be jealous of David because he could do that. <laughs> right, he looks pretty good here. He gets a little revengey later on. Verse 15. Ooh, I have bonus points. I will buy a cup of coffee for who can ever, whoever can tell me what animated show the word revengey came from besides you, because you know. Verse 15. Meanwhile, Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem, and Ahithophel was with them. And so it was when Hushai the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, that Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king, long live the king. So Absalom said to Hushai, Is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? Hushai said to Absalom, No, but whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel chose, his I will be, and with him I will remain. Furthermore, whom should I serve? Should I not serve in the presence of his son? As I have served in your father's presence, so will I be in your presence. Good job, Hushai. Tell a straight up lie. Straight up lie. David said, go back, tell Absalom you'll be loyal to him. That's exactly what he does. And 
Absalom believes it. We're going to see more about this in chapter 17. But Hushai is lying for a very specific purpose. To protect David. Verse 20. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, Give advice as to what we should do. And Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house. And all Israel will hear that you are abhorred by your father. Then the hands of all who are with you will be strong. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the top of the house, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now, the advice of Ahithophel, which he gave in those days, was as if one had inquired at the oracle of God. So was all the advice of Ahithophel, both with David and with Absalom. Now, this was a very common practice back then. If you took over a kingdom, one of the ways you would establish your power was to take all the king's harem, his wives, and his concubines, and sleep with them to demonstrate that you were the new king. Now, if we recall, David did not leave any of his wives behind. He didn't even leave all of his concubines, only ten, to keep the house. But Absalom, on the advice of Ahithophel, has sex with all of them on the roof. Now, if you didn't like Absalom before, what was his point? Well, because he knew, once David found out he had done this, that um, he would be displeased. Now, I want you to think back, because God told David after Bathsheba that what he had done, he did in secret. But the consequences would be public. At this point, there would be no reconciliation between David and Absalom. This closing comment about Ahithophel's advice shows us that he was an understanding and wise man. David thought him so, and now Absalom thinks him so. Chapter 17. Moreover, this is one of those places where the chapter breaks in a really bad spot. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Now let me choose 12,000 men. And I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and weak and make him afraid. And all the people who are with him will flee. And I will strike only the king. Remember, Ahithophel was the, uh, what was he, the grandfather of Bathsheba. So he doesn't really like the king. Um, he goes, I will bring back all the people to you. When all return, except the man whom you seek, all the people will be at peace. And the same pleased Absalom and all the elders of Israel. So, good advice, actually. This is really good advice. He goes, he's tired. He's scared. The people with him are going to be tired. I'm going to take 12,000 guys. He knew David did not have that many men with him. Right? He knew that when he fled the city, he probably only had the 600. 12,000 against 600 is pretty good odds, even against David, who we know was quite wise as a military strategy per person. Military, mil, uh, strategist, 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 strategist. I'm, I know it's strat. Now I can't even say it right. <laughs> yeah, you know what I'm talking about. David was good at killing people, right? What really, what really gives me just kind of like ah. 
is Absalom's like, this is a great idea. Spare all the other people and just kill my father. Dude! Just in case you ever think you have problems with your children. Verse 5. Then Absalom said, now call Hushai, the archite also, and let us hear what he says. When Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom spoke to him, saying, Ahithophel has spoke in this manner. Shall we do as he says? If not, speak up. Hushai said to Absalom, The advice that Ahithophel has given is not good at this time. For, said Hushai, you know your father and his men, that they are mighty men, and they are enraged in their minds like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field, and your father is a man of war. He will not camp with the people. Surely by now he is hidden in some pit or in some other place. And it will be when some of them are overthrown at the first that whoever hears it will say, there is a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. And even he who is valiant, whose heart is like the heart of a lion, will melt completely. For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man. And those who are with him are valiant men. Therefore, I advise that all Israel be fully gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba, like the sand that is by the sea for multitude and that you go to battle in person. So we will come upon him in some place where he may be found, and we will fall on him as the dew falls on the ground. And of him and all the men who are with him, there shall not be left so much as one. Moreover, if he is withdrawn into a city, then all Israel shall bring ropes to that city. We will pull it into the river until there is not one small stone found there. So Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The advice of Hushai the archite is better than the advice of Ahithophel. For the Lord had purposed to defeat the good advice of Ahithophel to the intent that the Lord might bring disaster. So I, I, I kind of dig this. Hushai knows Ahithophel's advice is good. Right? Yeah, you'll get there. You'll kill David. I don't want my master to die. So you know what? Ahithophel's advice is no good. Wait till you have everybody with you. And why should you wait till you have everybody with you? Because your dad, he's a stone cold killer, right? He's a mighty man. The men who are with him are mighty men. And yeah, you may come upon him with 12,000, but they're going to take some of your guys out. And when they take some of your guys out, they're going to get scared and they're going to run. Besides the fact that your dad is smart enough to not camp with everybody else. So even if you go in and kill all the men there, you won't find him. And of course, this is because God had a purpose. And his purpose was to defeat Ahithophel's advice. Now, there are some who suggest that if Ahithophel's advice had been followed, that Absalom would have defeated David. I don't really think that would have happened. God would have protected David by his providence. God clearly wanted to deal with Ahithophel and Absalom. But I just, there are some who suggest that. And I, I don't buy that. Because... I believe God is sovereign. Right? I believe God is sovereign. Among the attributes of God, we're going to talk about this for a few minutes. I kind of had fun. Among the attributes of God, we see that God is omnipotent, which means he is all-powerful. Isaiah 43, 13. God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. 1 John 3, 20. He's omnipresent. He is everywhere all at once, Jeremiah 23, 24, all of which add to God's sovereignty. Additionally, there are places in Scripture where God's sovereignty is explicitly seen. 
For example, Ephesians 1.11. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. We also have Matthew 10.29-31. through 31. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. That's an incredible thought, isn't it? We're getting to the time of year where we're seeing little birds flying about. And you know, what's going to happen? Well, they're going to, some of them are going to die. You see a little bird on the ground somewhere. He's like, oh, so sad. Little, you know, filthy flying rodent is dead. Um, (laughs) But the moment, whatever kind of bird that was, fell out of the sky and died, God was aware of it. That's incredible to me. Just incredible. (laughs) So how do we define sovereignty? Question 27 of the Heidelberg Catechism, which was written way back in 1563, so a few years before most of us, gives it a really good go. So a catechism, if you're unfamiliar, was a way of teaching theology, especially to children, but to adults as well, um, but through a series of questions and answers. So you would ask a question, what is the chief end of man? Uh, The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's actually not from the Heidelberg Catechism. That's from a different one. I'm looking at you because you should know. I should know too. (laughs) Um, Anyways, but that's beside the point. Westminster. Yes, it's from the Westminster Confession. Um, So in the Heidelberg Catechism, the question number 27 says, what do you understand by the providence of God? The answer is this. The almighty, everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were, by his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth with all creatures and so governs them that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. That's a really good definition for, you know, approaching 500 years old. In other words, and for our purposes, God is everywhere. He knows everything. He is all-powerful, and there is nothing outside of that. God's sovereignty is his right hand and power, sorry, God's sovereignty in his right hand and power to do all that he decides to do. God's sovereignty means that absolutely everything that needs to be done to bring about the purposes of God. God will see to it that it happens. That last part I borrowed from John Piper. So what does it mean for us? On one hand, it means we can trust God with everything because in his sovereignty, he will work everything out for good. We know that, Romans 8, 28. On the other hand, it leads us to ask the question about why there is evil in the world. Now, there are some who give a very simple answer to evil. Sin entered humanity through Adam's choice. As a result of sin, humans make sinful choices. 
And those sinful choices are why evil is in the world. It's a simple answer. It's true, right? There's a lot of scripture that can back that up. But what you get a lot, and you see people pose this question. There was, I actually think it was a philosopher who first did it, but I can't remember who. If God is all good, he can't be all powerful. And if God is all powerful, he can't be all good. This person could not reconcile the sovereignty of God with evil in the world because God could prevent tragedy. He could. Now, the easy answer again to that is that God has given us free will and people are responsible for their evil choices. We cannot blame God for the bad choices of human beings. And if he were to violate the free will of a human being, even if that free will was to do something awful, it would still be um, that person, sorry, would lose their, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? I've said free will like nine times. Their free moral agency. They would lose their moral agency, which is something that God has given us. And God didn't want us to be robots. He wanted us to choose to respond to the gospel. Right? That's the easy answer. Unfortunately, there are things that happen that we simply cannot explain. When we don't know, we fall back on what we do know. So what do we know? God is good. He loves us. He proved that love by giving us his son, and he has promised to work all things out for us. That means there will be times when things happen that we cannot explain. In those times, we trust our loving Father, and we wait for the day when he will make all things clear. Now, the difficulty in that is that little four-letter word in there, wait. I don't want to wait. I want to know right now. But I'm not God. And since he is God, it is perfectly fair for him to know things that I don't know. And it's perfectly reasonable of him to ask me to be okay with the fact that he knows things that I don't know. Because he is God and I am not. Now, there are times, and we talked, I mentioned it on Sunday when I was in the hospital room with the little boy who got shot in the head. There's questions I can't answer. I can't. I don't know why that would happen. I don't know why it would ever be allowed. I don't know how it works according to the purposes of God's will. Right? All of that just, I can't wrap my mind around it. But what I know is that God is good. And I know he loves us. And I know that he proved his love by giving us his son. And I know he promised to work all things out. So we may not have the answer. We may hate what happened. But we trust that our all-loving, all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present God knows what he's doing. Verse 15. 
Then Hushai said to Zadok and Abiathar the priest, Thus and so Ahithophel advised Absalom and the elders of Israel, and thus and so I have advised. Now therefore send quickly and tell David, saying, Do not spend this night in the plains of the wilderness, but speedily cross over, lest the king and all the people who are with him be swallowed up. Right? He knew Ahithophel's advice was good. Now Jonathan and Ahimaaz stayed at En-Rogel, for they dared not be seen coming into the city. So a female servant would come and tell them, and they would go and tell King David. Nevertheless, a lad saw them and told Absalom, but both of them went away quickly and came to a man's house in Bahurim, who had a well in his court, and they went down into it. Then a woman took and spread a covering over the well's mouth and spread ground grain on it, and the thing was not known. And when Absalom's servants came to the woman at the house, they said, Where are Ahimaaz and Jonathan? So the woman said to them, They have gone over the water brook. And when they had searched and could not find them, they returned to Jerusalem. Now it came to pass, after they had departed, that they, speaking of Ahimaaz and Jonathan, came up out of the well and went and told King David and said to David, Arise and cross over the water quickly, for thus has Ahithophel advised against you. So David and all the people who were with him arose, crossed over the Jordan, and by morning light not one of them was left who had not gone over the Jordan. So we see David's spy network working, right? Hushai hears everything that's going on. He goes and tells the priests, this was the two pieces of advice. Not exactly sure what Absalom's going to choose, but you probably should get a move on. So these two boys, who were the sons of the two priests, they run out, right? A kid sees them. They hide in Bahurim. Uh, The two guys come out, or several guys apparently come after them. This woman lies. They take off. They make it to David. He passes over the Jordan to give him some distance and time, which was the point of Hushai's advice anyway, was to give David time. Now, we've talked about this before, specifically when we were back in the book of Exodus, And we saw the midwives lying to Pharaoh about the Hebrew women and children that they had refused to kill. We saw it again when Rahab lied about hiding the Hebrew spies in Jericho in the book of Joshua. We have seen it a few other places, and again we see it here. This woman lied to protect these two men. While I believe that it is always right to tell the truth, Jesus clearly taught us to let our yes be yes and our no be no in Matthew 5.37. I think it is possible, right? Do not leave tonight saying, oh, well, Jason told us we can lie. That's not what I'm saying. I'm never saying that. What I'm saying is it may be possible to make a case biblically that if it's in order to save an innocent life, that God would be okay with you telling a lie. In order to save an innocent life. Think about the Ten Boom family and all the other families during World War II who hid Jewish people from the Nazis. They had to lie to the Nazis about it. So please don't take away from this, oh, I already put it in here, that I said that it was okay to lie. It's not. Tell the truth. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. And if the truth is, you know, oh, I'm just going to tell a little white lie to spare someone's feelings, it doesn't work. Be truthful. You don't have to be mean about it, but be truthful. However, I think if one of us was ever faced with a situation, which I pray none of us ever are, 
where we have the choice between telling the truth or saving an innocent life, that there is some biblical precedent for not being honest in that situation. I'm not telling you to lie. Right? just want to keep putting that out there. But I think, you know, if, if it came between telling the truth and saving a baby, I don't think I'd be so worried about um, being a little less truthful. Verse 23. Now, when Ahithophel saw that his advice was not followed, he saddled a donkey, he arose and went home to his house to the city, and then he put his household in order, and he hung himself and died. And he was buried in his father's tomb. Now, for those of you who know me, you know I'm a bit of a sore loser. This is taking being a sore loser to a whole nother level, right? Absalom didn't say to Ahithophel, I'm going to kill you because I like Hushai's advice better. He didn't say anything like that. What I personally think happened is that he realized that, oh, well, wait a second. God is against me. God is against Absalom. Absalom's going to lose. And because I betrayed David, that means I'm going to die. So I'm just going to go home and do it on my own terms. Um, but he maybe thought that would be better than facing David's judgment. I don't know. I don't think suicide is ever a right answer for anything or anybody. Uh, I think um, if anybody's listening, has ever considered it, that just reach out and get help. Mental illness is not weakness, and we don't have to do it alone. God said in Isaiah 41.10, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. But whatever the case, that was Ahithophel's way out. Verse 24. Then David went to Mahanaim. Absalom crossed over the Jordan, he and all the men of Israel with him. And Absalom made Amasa captain of the army instead of Joab. This Amasa was the son of the man whose name was Jithra, an Israelite who had gone in to Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, sister of Zeruiah, Joab's mother. I will explain that in a moment. <laughs> so Israel and all Absalom encamped in the land of Gilead. Absalom pursues, he makes Amasa Joab's cousin-in-law. Right? Every, I read that, and the first thing that came to mind was that scene in Spaceballs. I am your father's brother's sister's former roommate. What does that make us? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> right? This Amasa, he was the son of the man whose name was Jithra, an Israelite who had gone into Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, the sister of Zeruiah, Joab's mother. What? So if you go back and you sit down and you look at all, right, you figure out that Amasa is Joab's cousin-in-law because Abigail is Joab's cousin. Now, there's probably more to this than we are given here in Scripture, but Amasa was related to Joab through Amasa's relationship with Abigail. We are not told if they are married or not, which means he also could have been related to David because David and Joab were cousins as well. Right? So just... I, Absalom didn't do this on accident, right? I honestly think it would have been well known that Amasa was related to Joab in some way, and Amasa was related to David. So putting him as commander of his military forces would have given the people confidence in his ability. Well, oh, clearly he's related to David. 
He's related to Joab. Clearly, he's the right guy to lead the military. Verse 27. Now it happened when David had come to Mahanaim that Shobi, the son of Nahash from Rabbah, of the people of Ammon, Machir, the son of Amiel from Lodabar, and Barzillai, one of the greatest names in scripture, Barzillai the Gileadite from Rogalim. They brought beds and basins, earthen vessels, wheat, barley, flour, parched grains, beans, lentils, parched seeds, honey, curds, sheep, and cheese. For David and the people who were with him to eat. For they said, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. So we see these people involved in bringing care and supplies to David and his men who were hungry uh, and thirsty from traveling in the wilderness. So the first person mentioned is Shobi, who is the son of Nahash. Remember, Nahash is the mother of Abigail, who was sleeping with or married to Amasa. So Shobi is Amasa's brother-in-law. And he's now helping David along with the others. Now, I'm just, I'm going to throw this out there. If they had reality TV back then, this would have been the family to follow. Right? The, the, the real in-laws of, of, you know, Judea. I don't know what you would call it. But this family, I mean, and not that David's family wasn't messed up, but this family's out there. There's issues happening here. Uh, but something that's very interesting, Mahanaim, that's where Mephibosheth had run to when his grandfather and father died, Jonathan and Saul. Uh, well, Saul was his grandfather. Jonathan was his dad. Um, and they took care of Mephibosheth. I told you it was coming. They took care of him until David was kind to him. Now, I imagine when David was kind to him, right, these, these people in this area probably raised him. He was a child when that first happened. And so David, taking care of him, probably endeared him to these people. So now David's in trouble, and what do they do? They come out and take care of him. I like it. Next week, I don't know, I'm hopeful that we'll finish this next week, but I'm not betting on it. Um, Because, oh, you know, hopefully if we get to 18 and 19, it goes into 20 a little bit, but... Um, next week when we hopefully finish this ordeal, but we'll see what happens. Now, here's something I see. When we come to the end of ourselves, that is where God works the best. David has come to the end of himself. He must have, right? He's, he's running from his own son, giving up his throne, fleeing for his life, relying on the kindness of strangers just so he can eat. And sometimes God has to allow things to happen so that we come to the end of ourselves. And then we will come to a place of total trust and reliance upon him, which is what he wants. We can see that God has brought David to this place of desperation more than once. And I think you and I, that we are stubborn enough that he will have to do it more than once for each of us as well. The good news is that when we get to that place, then we will see God work on our behalf, and then only he will get the glory. Psalm 37, verse 5 says, Commit your way to the Lord, trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. I like that. Let's pray. 
Well, Father, we thank you for the beautiful things we got to study in your word tonight. Looking especially, God, at your sovereignty and the way that you work all things out. We see it happen time and time again in Scripture. And Father, if we're honest, we've seen it happen time and time again in our own lives. And so, Lord, I don't know what each of us is facing tonight. But I imagine we're all facing something. I pray that you would strengthen us in our inner being with your might by the power of your spirit so that we can understand your love and that we can trust you to work all things out for our good and according to your perfect will and purposes. Pray that you would be glorified in all these things, that you would watch over us as we continue this week. In Jesus' name, amen.